Hello and welcome to this special City of Fremantle Hungerford Award edition of the Fremantle Press podcast. Today we are recording on Wayalab in Wajak Noongar Buja and I'd like to acknowledge our first storytellers along with the Noongar elders past, present and future. My name is Maria Pappas. My novel Skimming Stones won the City of Fremantle Hungerford Award in 2020. I'm delighted to be asked to help introduce you all to the next round of Hungerford writers, those four shortlisted writers waiting expectedly for the announcement of the winner on Thursday, the 20th of October. When I think back now, I remember being so nervous, I didn't yet realise how life-changing this award would be for me. Today's guest is Jared McCann, whose manuscript is a memoir called Tell Me the Story. And at this point, I'd like to let you know that today's podcast does include a depiction of abuse. So listener discretion is advice. First up, we ask Fremantle Press publisher Georgia Richter to describe why she chose this manuscript for the shortlist. I think that memoirs that document traumatic and difficult life events are particularly difficult to get right because the reader has a certain resistance to embarking on such a journey. But that said, I found Gerard McCann's Tell Me the Story a really compelling read and it reinforced for me how when a story is well told, anything is possible. And this memoir has a sense of openness and transparency and it's also really got the sense of someone who is in control of the narrative so that it is not a victim's story but it is a survivor's story and that's really triumphant. And you get the sense that also this is a tale that's born of long reflection and processing. So it's perceptive and generous and insightful and I really loved it. And now let's hear from the writer himself. Gerard McCann grew up in the suburbs of Perth in the 1950s and 60s. He studied architecture at UWA and practised in the profession for many years. During that time, he has always written, studied English literature postgrad and belonged to small writing groups. Welcome, Gerard, and congratulations. I want to start by asking you to tell us something about yourself that's not in your writing bio. Well, I've had counselling and therapy on and off properly most of my life, but during most of that, uh, the issue of childhood sexual abuse remained pretty well concealed and protected. I looked after the secret. And it was only exceptional trauma therapy at the Sexual Assault Resource Centre in Subi that allowed the reintegration, really, of whole parts of myself that had been um, submerged or lost since childhood. I also had uh, Jungian psychotherapy and dream analysis many years, and this has enabled me to have an intimate relationship with my psyche so that uh, I'm very conscious of dreams and I see them as my inner poetry, if you like, the enigmatic kind of uh, metaphors that are what I think are an essential part of being alive. And I use them to guide me in kind of a subtle way. I've also had a long and supportive marriage. And I think that few men who have been sexually abused as children could probably survive 
the outing of their secret without the support and empathy of a close friend or a partner. I also love camping in the bush, sleeping under the stars, brewing coffee on fires. But most of all, I love sitting on the floor with my grandchildren and entering into their imaginative worlds, uh, traveling with them to wherever their minds lead them, uh, which I find is always to a place of wonder. Gerard, you've written a narrative non-fiction and it's a very personal piece. Could you please begin by telling us more about your manuscript? Uh, it was sexually abused over many years by uh, the assistant priest at my parish in Cottesloe and then later when he was transferred to Quirodin. The sexual abuse is not just a physical trauma, of course, but a psychological assault that is almost impossible for most people to fathom. At its core is the secret uh, that the child is compelled to enter into, and the secret both paralyzes this child's psyche as well as destroying their capacity for relationship with their parents, who should be there, of course, to help disentangle the world's traumas. The simple act of the priest telling me that I could not tell them, in effect, disabled my trust and relationship with them, which was severed the first day of the abuse and unfortunately never recovered. And this inability to trust has creeped down through my life and in all my relationships, professionally and personally. And I begin in the manuscript really by discussing this at length. But the simple act of writing the story was also the beginning of the peeling of the onion, if you like, the layer after layer of not just the traumas, but the insights that followed on how the child and then the adolescent and then the adult had been emotionally and psychologically disabled. Um, this process also exposed the reasons behind so much of the angst and dysfunction in my family, uh, which was so profound that I speculate that it contributed to my mother's mental breakdowns. Um, in this sense, I suppose, my abuse became secondary to the disintegration of her mental health and our family cohesion, which became centre stage. And I was able to document some of this and, in fact, quite a bit of this with some pretty basic but honest poetry, which I was given to writing as an adolescent. Uh, and now coming writing this manuscript, I found that the poetry, which I still have, was... In, in effect, an authentic recollection of the events at the time. Um, but perhaps because I've had an extraordinarily gifted, supported and empathic wife, Sue, and also exceptional sexual abuse therapy, I've been able to integrate these events less as a victim and more as an interested observer. And this has allowed me to um, explore if you like, who the priest was, his world and his victims. And although some of this exploration was freshly traumatising, it also started another profound journey, which was meeting and uncovering the many stories of other boys who'd been abused by the same priest. I came to realise then that my writing of the manuscript was not just the documentation of my experience, but also the honouring and validation of that of so many others. And then I realised that I was writing that not just for myself, but for the hundreds of other boys who had and were still suffering and who, in effect, 
were continuing their disabled lives. Uh, the manuscript also documents at length my pursuit of justice through the Catholic Church and the process of the Royal Commission and my involvement in it. And this occupies probably a, a, about one third of the length of the work. We're so grateful to you for sharing this extract with us from Tell Me the Story. Will you please start when you're ready? Sure. Leinig arrived unannounced at the back door just before dinner time. He stood just inside the vestibule. I felt the sudden deflation as the air was sucked out of me, our secret instantly resurrected. My mother had no reason to refuse him, especially as we were about to sit down for dinner. She stretched the meal eight ways or went without herself to include him. His presumptuousness beggared belief when I reflect on what our family were enduring so soon after Grandad's death and the court proceedings. Our dining table was octagonal, 1960s laminex with a red and white scatter pattern and chrome legs. It sat in the middle of the vestibule. The spare space at the table was opposite my father and Leinig sat himself there next to me. He said grace and as, it, as had happened previously on the altar, I realised he was looking at me, remote and watchful. The usual chatter and shayaking of my brothers took on a greater volume each of them talking over the others to impress father. When dinner was finished, he became the showman, telling stories and jokes, and we all laughed as his narrowed eyes roamed the table back and forth. I watched those beady eyes. I remember five visits in his grooming of the family. Each time he performed a new jest. On the first visit, he gave a slideshow of a trip he'd made with a fellow priest across the Nullarbor Plain. He brought his own projector and we watched the pictures on the vestibule wall. One was taken from the passenger's seat inside the car. It was at night and showed a flared match lighting a cigarette, lighting up his face as he was driving the car. He warned us that the flare from the match temporarily blinded him. He was teaching us safe driving habits. On two visits, he did the Craven A rocket trick, carefully disassembling an empty Craven A cigarette packet. He spread the aluminium foil inner lining flat on the table. Then taking the tissue paper that encased the cigarettes, he folded it into a concertina shape. Standing this on its end on the aluminium foil, he lit the tissue. The flames burnt down until all that was left was the gossamer thin ash still intact and upright in its concertina form. The weightlessness of the tissue ash in the rising column of hot air caused it to rise quickly like a rocket until it nearly hit the ceiling. Do it again, Father, we all shouted. He arrived another evening at dip time as usual and again unannounced, carrying a small dusky pink canvas carry bag, which he put on the floor beside him at the table. It was a typical meal. My brothers all talking at once, vying for his attention. Dom, whose nickname was Talky Talky, was the loudest. Both he and Paddy were young and impressionable, keen to have a voice over us domineering three older brothers. When we'd finished and the empty plates were cleared away, he lifted the carry bag onto the table and showed us it contained a portable tape recorder, a brand new battery-operated Grundy reel-to-reel. It was the first we'd ever seen. I've had my housekeeper sew the microphone into this invisible pocket, he said, 
pointing at a small black dot surrounded by pink stitching on the outside of the bag. It had been running since he arrived, recording our meal together. We gathered round, leaning over the table, and listened again to our chatter. The meal had sounded like chaos, each of us clamouring to be heard above the other, especially Dom. The dinner table was his stage, and his chatter was hilarious. We all thoroughly approved of Leinig's trick. Leinig sat through it all, unsmiling, detached in his inscrutable way, scanning our faces still, left to right, left to right. He didn't approach me in the house nor single me out for special attention. It was not, and it was not in my nature to be insolent or disrespectful or do anything that might betray my secret. Nothing awkward or distressing had happened, so I laughed along with everyone else, conscious, though, of being separate from them all. The only relationship that existed at the table was between Leinig and I. Our secret was an invisible, tight cord, and I endured its tension, warily watching his eyes roam back and forth. He was like a sorcerer, mesmerising the whole family. Gerard, this is an important story and your work has the potential to resonate with readers who may have had similar experiences but who may not also be in a position to articulate that experience themselves. How does it feel to see your story on the City of Fremantle Hungerford Award shortlist? Despite my previous writings being enjoyed by friends and family and the fulfilment that writing this manuscript has brought, and despite the encouragement of my writing group, I never credited myself as being a writer per se. That voice over my shoulder kept whispering, you're a fraud, don't kid yourself. But being shortlisted for the Hungerford Award, however, is like a lit up neon sign flashing across the sky saying, you can write, you can write. Someone is saying this officially and you can trust them. Apart from that, it more importantly validates this story and its telling and the honest honesty and the fearlessness and, in the end, justice for these boys and the, their dealings with the Catholic Church. Your bio note indicates that you've always written alongside another career entirely. Tell us about having two careers and how they work in parallel to one another. Well, although I've always had a professional career as an architect and would have to say modestly that I've been reasonably competent at it, I've never felt as though I was an architect in the sense that Kerry Hill, the Fremantle architect, once said that he was an architect like a dog was a dog. Um, and I, when I heard that, I realised that I actually wasn't an architect, that I ne- had never felt that and, in a way, never would, that it was always a default position for me. Uh, and that when I was, uh, start, I'd started writing um, really as an adolescent, writing poetry and then short stories, and then when I started travelling as a 20-year-old, uh, writing extensive um, diaries that became manuscripts in themselves in those days and then subsequently short stories and then writing groups. So the writer was always uh, sublimated by, by the professional on the surface and although architecture economically and professionally uh, sat on top, the writer underneath never felt like it had been given any validity 
certainly by, not by myself. And although friends and um, writing group fellow members always said, you're a good writer, I never actually believed it for myself. And so I hovered in this um, never world really between not really feeling like an architect and not validated as a writer. And so winning the, uh, becoming on the shortlist rather for the Hungerford has um, in, in a way validated that other part, which is the writer. Uh, when my wife Sue and I came back from travelling in Europe in the early, uh, mid-1970s, we moved to Fremantle because it was the only place in Perth that we felt somehow embodied uh, the spirit of what where we had lived in Europe. But also we were both felt marginalised, both from our families and from society, from our personal experiences. And so Fremantle was a place that somehow supported the marginalised and, of course, this was also the case with the arts. So uh, the early theatre groups, Desperate Measures, the realist artists, the communities, and then the Fremantle Arts Centre opening up. It was Fremantle always seemed to us to embody who we were, which were fringe dwellers, both um, from a cultural point of view, but also from um, uh, a traditional Western uh, middle class upbringings which we'd had and so we have always felt part of Fremantle and have always lived in Fremantle and wouldn't live there anywhere else um, and that uh, the we've always felt then that the the fact that the city has supported its art community in that way um, would be the reason that um, the, the Hungerford Award for me is an embodiment of the support for writers uh, in the same way that the um, print award and those that supported the visual arts. I'd like to, I think, acknowledge my family. Um, I've been privileged enough um, economically and psychologically to have a career, um, but also that enabled me to have time off to write when I did. But that none of that would have been possible if my wife Sue and our children had not been 100% uh, on the page with me and supporting me through the ups and downs and I have to say some fairly extensive downs, um, but that uh, their support really enabled me to keep going when sometimes it felt like uh, I was beating my head against the wall. Um, and in that process, of course, uh, it for me, having children and that support of family has been a redemption. And in the process, I feel like I have rediscovered um, whole aspects of my own childhood, which prior to the abuse was very happy. And one of the reasons now I enjoy so much sitting on the floor with grandchildren, being in a way back, able to be back in that world of innocence. Gerard, thank you for being here and sharing your work with our listeners. Listeners, you can meet Gerard McCann at the 2022 City of Fremantle Hungerford announcement at Fremantle Arts Centre on Thursday, the 20th of October. 
Tickets are free and available from the Fremantle Press website or Eventbrite. I'm Maria Pappas and I look forward to joining you in our next Hungerford podcast. Yeah.